0: As we prepare to hear our scripture passage today, I wanna point out that this is the third scene in Luke where Jesus dines in the house of a Pharisee. Each time a controversy erupts that serves to clarify the views Jesus has of God and of human relationships. Jesus had just told the host that when you have a dinner or a luncheon, don't invite your family and rich friends who can pay you back. Rather, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot pay you back. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And this is what the dinner guest is responding to in the first verse of our passage that comes to us today from Luke 14, verses 15 through 24 hear now the word of God. One of the dinner guests on hearing this said to Jesus, blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then Jesus said to him, someone gave a great dinner and invited many. At the time for the dinner, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I must go out and see it. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I have just been married and therefore I cannot come. So the slave returned and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry, and he said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the town, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave said, Sir, what you have ordered has been done, and there is still room. Then the master said to the slave, Go out into the roads and lanes, and compel people to come in, so that my house may be filled for I tell you, none of those who are invited will taste my dinner. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Open our hearts and minds, O God, to the word just read and the words to come, that they might point to you, the word made flesh. Amen. We are just a few days away from the only major holiday that has the table as the major focal point. I know on Thursday that we'll have the Macy's Day Parade and a whole lot of football and a whole lot of eating. But even if you normally eat your dinner in an easy chair watching Jeopardy! or the evening news, Thanksgiving is the one time a year that most of us make the effort to gather around a table. We gather with family, near and far. We gather with old friends, We gather with new friends who find themselves alone. It is so important to gather together that way back in 2007, the term Friendsgiving was coined. Just because you don't have family nearby doesn't mean you have to miss out on the feast. And what a feast it is. The average American will consume a hefty 3,000 calories in dinner alone. Add drinks dessert, appetizers. It brings the total to a whopping 4,500 calories. But I'm not here to talk about the food or our waistlines. I want to talk about the table. Jen Hatmaker shared about the table in her visit here on Wednesday night, which, by the way, will be posted on our website um, starting next week if you missed it. In her growing up years, life revolved around the table her parents' table and her grandparents' table. At these tables, family and friends gathered, of course, for meals and for birthday parties. As she sat at the table, Jen felt loved and adored. She knew that she belonged. You know someone else who understands the importance of gathering around a table? Pastor Mingy. She knows the transforming power of sharing a meal and a conversation, which is why you see her opening her home and cooking for new member dinners, for Stephen ministers, and for other kinds of groups of people. It's why she's always promoting Wednesday night life dinners and why she hosts the chili cook-off year after year. If she can gather us around a table with food, she's going to do it. It turns out the table was very important to Jesus' ministry as well. Think of all the times Jesus used the act of sharing a meal, the act of breaking bread as a way of letting people know that they were seen, heard, known, and respected. Imagine if we carried the same intention for people at our tables. In the Gospel of Luke, nothing is more serious than a dining table. Both the Lord's Supper and revelations of the risen Christ happened at the table. It was while eating together that Christ gave his disciples the promise of the Holy Spirit, and he gave them their commission. And it was by table fellowship that Jews and Gentiles were able to be the church. I wonder if God gave Jesus the gift of carpentry because the central part of his ministry was to build a bigger table, which is why there is still room. This brings us back to our scripture passage for today. The passage opens with a fellow guest, sensing that Jesus is talking about the eschatological banquet, the banquet for the end of time. Perhaps with a bit of piety and confidence, this guest Knowing that he is included joins Jesus in affirming that those who feast at the Lord's table are truly blessed. Darn when Jesus responds with a parable. Because every time Jesus tells a parable, I watch my position of power and certainty slip through my fingers. Jesus used parables, stories, and the example of his life to show us who God really is and the kingdom of God, what it is really like. One theme that runs through the Gospels revolves around the generous hospitality of a host giving a party. It turns out, God is the ultimate gracious party giver. The NIV translation says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. Now let me explain something important about the way formal suppers or like this great banquet would have worked in Jesus' day. There were always two invitations. First, an invitation with the day of the banquet would be sent out months ahead of time so the guests could mark their calendars. This is like our save the date invitation. The invited guests would RSVP, indicating their commitment to attend. Then the host would know how many guests to expect. As you can imagine, food preparation was very different in the day that Jesus lived, so it was hard to know exactly when the food would be ready. And there was no refrigeration, so everything had to be eaten soon after it was prepared. When the food was ready, Servants were sent out to invite everyone to come. This was the second invitation. And being invited to a banquet was a big deal. Life was hard in first century Palestine, with people working typically six days a week, 12 hours a day, and then one day off, and then starting it all again. There was very little entertainment. No golf courses, no orchestra or theater, no Netflix. Life was difficult, short, and compared to our lives, largely uneventful. So imagine the host's surprise when people began making excuses to not come to the banquet. Most scholars say these excuses were weak. Who buys land without first inspecting it? or tries out oxen after they've been purchased, or who uses his wife as a get-out-of-jail-free card? I can't go. I'm married. Whether the excuses are valid or not, the host felt snubbed, and he is furious. But suddenly, the table is going to get a little bigger. The host is about to do the unthinkable. He is going to invite all the wrong people to the party, the poor, the lame, the blind, and even those characters who are living in the streets out beyond the city gates. You might be seated next to a misfit. Now, the person that you identify with in this story may impact how you hear it, and how you then apply it to your life? Are you more like the Pharisees who are seated at the table, listening with power and privilege to host? Or are you more like the person on the outside, looking in, feeling marginalized and often left out? It takes a hard, honest look in the mirror to see the Pharisee perhaps hiding inside of us, because nobody likes a Pharisee. They were more interested in exalting themselves and keeping other people humble. In his book, A Bigger Table, John Pavlovitz writes this about the Pharisees. They get a bad rap, the black-hatted villains, to serve as examples of hypocrisy and hubris. Yet they were deeply religious, extremely faithful men, wanting to please and honor God and to preserve the faith of their fathers in a world that threatened it. The problem was that their desire to place a hedge of protections around godliness and to preserve tradition had become toxic, segregating them from the growing number of people they began to deem morally inferior. When you place yourself in the position of defending the faith, you begin to believe you have cornered the market on piety and truth. The poor and marginalized now merited only their contempt never their compassion. Though they were incredibly earnest and God-fearing, they grew more and more oblivious to the suffering around them and to their responsibility to step into that hurt and to bring life. They lived as walking contradictions of love for God and disregard for so many of God's people. Forgive me, O God for the Pharisee that is often hiding inside of me. I don't want to be that kind of religious person. I want to be open to all human beings, especially the marginalized and the misfits. Perhaps you hear this story as a person who doesn't quite fit in it reminds me of my middle daughter, Hallie, who is now 27 years old and who gave me permission to share this story as I remembered it. Hallie was a bit of a precocious child. With her little hands on her hips, she announced to me in second grade that she was gonna to go to Pineview next year. Now, for those of you who are new to Sarasota, Pineview is a wonderful school for gifted kids. This announcement came as a surprise to me, though, because Hallie and her older sister were both at Ashton Elementary, and we loved it there. Hallie was a driven, determined little girl who wouldn't take no for an answer, not nearly as cute as she looks. Part of my hesitation was that I would have to fight with Hallie every single night over every single piece of homework that she brought home from Ashton. She would dally and delay and take hours to complete something that should have only taken a few minutes. Well, she kept pestering me about Pineview, and I finally said, fine, fine, but if you go, you are on your own with your homework. I'm not fighting you, I'm not reminding you, this is your deal. And she went, and she excelled as she does. Once on a third grade field trip, after our picnic lunch at the park, the kids were running and swinging and laughing on the playground, and I said, Hallie, you should go out and play and have some fun before you have to go back to school. She stood on the edge of the playground, looking at all of her classmates, having so much fun. Tears pooled in her big brown eyes, And I encouraged her some more, like, Hallie, Hallie, go out and play. And she said, I can't. I don't see where I fit. In her TED Talk, called The Beauty of Being a Misfit, author Lydia Yuknovich says, I'm a card-carrying misfit, and I'm here for all the other misfits in the room because I'm never the only one. She likes the word, misfit, because it is so literal. It is a person who missed fitting in, or a person who fits in badly, or a person who is poorly adapted to new situations. Lydia tells part of her story that led to her not fitting in. Like legions of other children, she came from an abusive household. She epically failed at two marriages, flunked out of college twice, was sent to rehab for drug use, and even had, as she termed it, two staycations in jail. Is this a person you would invite to your table? The tipping point for Lydia was when her daughter died on the day she was born, and Lydia didn't know how to live with that story. After that, she spent a long time homeless in a profound state of zombie grief and loss. And then she said, homeless people are some of our most heroic misfits because they start out as us. Can't you just hear Jesus sawing the wood to build a bigger table? Michael Gerson, who wrote for the Washington Post and spoke at our church just a few years ago, died this past week from cancer at 58 years old. Gerson was also very public about his battle with depression, giving him the badge of misfit as well. In a sermon he preached at the National Cathedral two weeks after he was here with us, he said this, I suspect that there are people here today, and I include myself, who are stalked by sadness, or stalked by cancer, or stalked by anger. We are afraid of the mortality that is knit into our bones, We experience unearned suffering, or give unreturned love, or cry useless tears, and many of us eventually grow weary of ourselves, tired of our own sour company. Gerson combined his lived faith with his gift for expression, to offer a hand to others, a place at his table, showing that they are not alone in the dark. And that's what it takes, right? We get a glimmer of hope when someone notices us with a tender word or touch, when someone invites us to join them at their table where we feel seen, heard, known, and respected. Jesus shows us how to do it, how to build a table just like God's table where there is still room. There is always room for one more. We just need to accept the invitation and brush up on our carpentry skills.